I'll invite you thus to turn to 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10 today. We've gone significantly slower through this passage than I had initially intended um, as the I've been studying and putting together the sermons. There's just a great deal of content there uh, that I don't want us to miss. Last time in our time together, we spoke uh, on the concept of godliness with contentment. And we really spoke uh, primarily on that foundational, principled, fundamental level of the manner, the method, how it is that we interact with the things in this world and what it is about the things in this world uh, that actually pose a risk to us. And we considered uh, that it is, it is significantly more so, we might say, um, not the things themselves, but rather how our hearts interact with those things uh, that we need to recognize. And thus, if we're trying to solve the problem, we certainly identify the, the nature of the, the elements at hand and how they tempt us, but we need to boil ourselves down to uh, what's the problem in our heart and how can that be solved in Christ. So the focus of our time uh, was on primarily that, and then we boiled over into this concept of contentment. And the focus there was not on having things, but, but, but on how we interact with those things, how we respond to those things. Can you and I, regardless of our material state, live in a context of godly contentment, to obey the Lord, to reflect the Lord, to join the Lord, and to leave the rest to God? Are we bearing the fruit of contentment in our lives, not just cutting off those things that cause the problem, not just denying ourselves, but rather and truly living in the context of contentment with such things as we have? So we ask the question, what drives you? What drives your desire unto any given end? Is it to maximize the potential and the gifts the Lord has given you? Or is it to define yourselves or to add meaning to your existence? What drives you? Are your desires filtered through godly contentment? Or is your relationship with God being filtered through your desires for material, emotional, or religious things? And this was the confrontation of last week. And naturally, as we come to expect within the context of 1 Timothy, Paul is, is going to turn his attention within the broader, uh, well, more specific context, I should say, within this broader context, he's going to turn his attention to ministers, right? Because this is what the book is about. The book is about ministers. The book is about the church. The book is about how the church uh, is, is meant to interact with ministers, how the church is meant to interact with ministry itself. My apologies. I'm going to put these tissues up here. I've got a little bit of a cold going on, and uh, so I'm going to be working through that as I'm working through this sermon as well. I apologize for any distraction that might cause. And, and we're going to see Paul's words focus more directly upon money itself this week. Uh, we talked last week about how it, the, the, the concept of contentment uh, does not directly relate itself to whether or not we have money, but um, there is something about money, isn't there? There is something about material, earthly possessions um, that brings with it dangers, concerns, um, pitfalls. And we're going to see this focus today. I do desire that you filter it through what we said last week. This is not a message against money. I hope that will become clear as we're walking through it. This is not a message against money. This is not a message against possessions. Uh, but what we're going to see in these two verses is the nature of our hearts, how it can respond to money, and some of the dangers that can lie within that. So going back for context, the Bible says this in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So as Paul continues his exhortation unto contentment, uh, with a, he does so with a presentation of what we would call the antithesis of contentment, the opposite of contentment. 
And notice here that the contrast is not between contentment and money, but between contentment and the will unto money. They that will be rich, intend to, exercise their will unto, direct their intentions, their heart, their efforts unto. The text does not say that the rich man is drowned in destruction and perdition, but the man who will be rich. It can be well observed in this world that the will to be rich does not exist only among those who have a, a, attained unto such riches, is it? In fact, I, I find a measure in comfort in the assertion that the will to be rich is just as strong, if not stronger, among those who lack money than those who have it. But the results of this will to be rich are just as evident regardless of one's economical status. Just as evident in the lives of those who attain as those who do not attain. The will to be rich invariably leads men into temptations, into snares, and into lusts. And let's talk about these in turn. The first idea here that he gives, they that will be rich fall into temptation. The concept of temptation in the Bible is not reflective of something that is sinful in and of itself. It's simply the idea of being tried, going through adversity, being tested in some way. Often when we speak of the concept of temptation, we give it the flavor or the perspective of something that is bad. But in itself, Temptation is not sinful. Now, it is bad in the sense that we don't like it, we don't want it, but it is not in itself sinful. The problem is not when I am tempted. The problem is when I yield to temptation. Now, to this end, one of the things we speak about in this life is the ways to avoid temptation, and there can be sin involved, evil involved, in the idea of, le of, of, of leading myself into temptation or allowing myself uh, to go to a place or to be put into a, a circumstance where I know that temptation is going to happen and where failure will be likely. I think of um, the description that Solomon gives of the young man in Proverbs chapter 6, uh, and he says that he is a young, um, young man who is simple and void of understanding. And he sees this young man, and then he sees the corner of the harlot's house, right? And he, he sees this young man who is simple and void of understanding, who does not understand that he can't even go by the corner. The young man goes by the corner and he perhaps thinks, yeah, I'm fine, I can resist, this is not a problem. And then he gets brought into her allures and as he gets brought into her allures, she, uh, she, she allures him through her flattery and then he is overcome. And Solomon's uh, effective theme is if he had not gone by the corner, if he was a wise man, he would have simply avoided the corner, right? He would not have even gone by the corner of that woman's house, knowing that as you get to that point, there's danger there. You cannot trust yourself, right? And that idea certainly comes into play when we talk about temptation. But you know, there are any number of temptations in this life which are inevitable, right? They are just a part of living life. Every day we contend with the temptations unto carnal lusts because of society. Society's propensity, particularly in this day and age, for indecency. Every day we have to contend with temptations to covet because of the ubiquitous nature of advertising in our culture. Even if you're not turning on a television or a radio or, 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 or uh, looking uh, at, at things on the internet as far as advertisements and stuff, would, stuff things would be concerned. Uh, if you're driving anywhere, you're seeing billboards. If you're driving around, you are seeing new vehicles, new things in people's hands, uh, new clothes on people. You are, you are seeing the lavishness of our culture all around us, and there's a natural drive to covetousness. Every day we have to contend with contentions unto uh, uh, temptations unto laziness and procrastination and rebellion and all of these things which simply uh, um, present themselves to us by living, right? Simply by, by having a heart that's beating, by having a, a, a breath that we're breathing, air that we're breathing, we are under temptation and there's an inevitability to it. And then, as we talked about from Proverbs 6, there are temptations into which we place ourselves, right? We enter into environments which we know are going to be sources of temptation. And these being needless, they are sometimes not accompanied by God's grace. We allow our thoughts or our emotions to wander without restraint. 
And this is the idea, not of temptation, as Paul speaks of it here, but of a snare, a trap, a trick, as the Greek word has it. Before I consider that directly, let me just say a few more things about this concept of temptation. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James writes this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, that word patience meaning steadfast endurance, endurance without murmuring or fretfulness. But let patience have her perfect work, he says in verse 4, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James calls the brethren to count it all joy when they fall into diverse, that word meaning many or manifold, temptations. The call to resist temptation, which is a call to walk by faith and not by sight, to deny that which my flesh desires in deference to the promises of the Spirit, <coughs> these things, while they're not fun, grow our faith. They cultivate our relationship with the Lord. They work in us endurance. The only way to build physical endurance is to push one's body to its limits, to feel that pain, that burn that comes with the muscles as they strain, to experience the ache and the soreness afterwards as you are dealing with your muscles recovering or healing from the strain under which they had been put. And the other end of that experience, the other end of that pain, the other end of that burn, the other end of that soreness is a relative strengthening of the muscles, a toning and a strengthening of the body. And there's really no other way to build physical endurance than to work your body. And there's no other way to build spiritual endurance than to have your spirit exercised. We should count it a joyful thing to have our faith tested in these ways because it is the only way that we truly can grow. There's no other way to build spiritual endurance than to be under spiritual temptation. To that end, we do not run away from life. We do not cloister ourselves in a monastery somewhere, lock the doors, not let the world in. In fact, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 5 as he says, I wrote unto you that you uh, don't keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether fornicators of this world, or else you would have to come out of this world. Paul says, I didn't tell you not to not, not to keep company with fornicators of this world because that, that, that's a part of this world. And if you were to not keep company with fornicators of this world, then you'd have to come out of this world. And if we come out of this world, how can we reach this world? If we are so deeply sensitive to the temptations that surround us that we're unable to operate, then how can we reach this world? We must have our our, our faith exercised to a point. And that faith being exercised comes by having temptations that approach us and us handling them, rebuffing them, living, uh, enduring them, and thus becoming spiritually strong. And failing to do this, running away from life, cloistering ourselves, and thus not ever having to endure and thus overcome these temptations can pose for us a real risk of becoming ineffective for the kingdom of God if we're not careful. So James tells us, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He goes on to say in verses 12 through 15, blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The man who endures temptation is a blessed man because this is proving his faith. This works in him patience, that endurance, and that endurance enables him to run this race better, to please the Lord more, to lay up treasure in heaven, to be more effective in his calling to reach the world. But James also wants us to understand something else about temptation. That though these temptations are a blessing to the degree to which we find in them victory, these temptations are not sourced in God. 
And those of you that understood what I was talking about last week will understand this concept uh, now perhaps a little bit better. The situations that bring us into temptation, those may be from God. God may bring that person into your life. God may allow an opportunity to be placed before you. But God is not the one that is placing that temptation in our hearts. The interaction of something that God might bring into your life with your sinful heart is what's bringing about the temptation, right? You are tempted when you are drawn away of your own lusts and enticed. It is when that thing that is in the world is interacting with your own heart that then the things that are in your heart are manifest and temptations are brought to bear. The sin within us works in us a temptation unto further sinfulness, sin nature. It's our lust which draws us away into temptation. Our desire for that which is not virtuous or our desire for that which is a twisting, twisting or a bending or a perverting of, of God's design, this brings about the enticement to sin. And sin is only uh, the product of us then indulging that flesh, indulging that sin nature, uh, not walking by faith, but rather walking by our lust, choosing that which is flesh, that which the flesh wants rather than what the spirit wants, choosing the promises of this world above the promises of the word of God. And it is there that the natural cravings of our sin nature give way to an indulgence in the sin nature and so to sin itself. And whenever we sin, the end result is death. This word meaning separation. When we, when we see that in the scriptures, this concept of, of, of death, the wages of sin being death, spiritual separation. And this is not not just, as we've said before, a warning to unbelievers. It is not just to the unbeliever that we say the wages of sin is death, though indeed it is, and the end result of their death is a permanent separation, and that would be in the lake of fire. But when I sin, I work in me a loss of fellowship with the Lord. There is something between me and the Lord that brings a measure of separation, a measure of death that death, there's no implication in that, that there is ever a loss of salvation. Please do not take me wrong here. Nathaniel mentioned it this morning from John chapter 10. So too we see it throughout the scripture that there, is, there, there are verses that can be interpreted this way, but there is no statement as we boil down the principles of the word of God and then build upon those principles, sound interpretation under sound doctrine that tells that, that, that gives us any sort of an implication that once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you are placed into Christ and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and you are born again and made new in him, that there is any way that that process is to be undone. A child that is born cannot be unborn. He can be killed, but he cannot be unborn. The new creation that is created within us. There's no implication in Scripture that that can be uncreated. Jesus said that no man can pluck him, that would be the one that comes unto him, out of his Father's hand. And so we have this recognition, and yet, as those who are believers and safe kept in grace, it is entirely possible that we can quench the Spirit of God, grieve the Spirit of God, and in quenching and grieving the Spirit of God, walk in a natural or fundamental separation from fellowship with the Lord. This is what Jesus was warning about in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he, uh, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So he says that the branches that are within him that don't bear fruit are taken away. And the branches that are in him that bear fruit, he purges it. And then what does he say to them? Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He says, I'm not talking about whether you're clean or not. You're clean. But then he says, abide in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. You can't bear fruit if you're not attached to the vine. So stay attached to the vine. Jesus is not exhorting them to get saved again and again and again. And that every time they, they're, they're going to lose their salvation every time they, they, they don't abide. No, the concept is when you're not abiding in me, you separate yourself from the intrinsic power that comes through me, the Spirit of God flowing through you, the fruit of the Spirit meant to define your life. So 
when we sin, we are separated from fellowship with God. Not the love of God, the fellowship of God. Romans 8 makes it clear that those who have the Spirit of God, nothing can separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you can be separated from the fellowship of God, from the power of God through, to work within you the Spirit of righteousness. To sin is to quench that spirit, to cut oneself off from that daily moment-by-moment -moment sustenance found, through, uh, found it, uh, through Christ and instead to live in the indulgence of the flesh, to live in the old man rather than the new. Romans 14, 23 tells us whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Thus temptation is the point of decision between exercising faith in the revealed word of God or denying faith in the revealed word of God. And as it is impossible to please God without faith, Hebrews 11, 6, to choose the path that denies faith in God's word is sin. To allow the lust of my heart to conceive and thus to work in me spiritual death. And this is the idea presented here as Paul combines temptation with a snare. That the man who has the will to be rich is walking into a trap. He is not regarding his way. He is not considering his path. He is going to come to a point of decision. As we sang about a few moments ago, I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. He's going to become to a, point of uh, to a point of decision where at some point, even if it's not the point where he becomes rich, where he is going to be asked to decide between the things of this life and the things of the life to come. And the man who will be rich the man who is driven by that desire is going to have a very hard time with that temptation. And there's going to be a snare there, a trap there. And once he has allowed himself to enter into, again, not that context of wealth, but into that framework of mind and of spirit, that desire, that expectation of which can come nothing other than temptation unto sin and loss of fellowship. Here's the thing about temptations into which we step knowingly. When we enter ourselves into temptation by indulging some measure of the flesh, as opposed to having a temptation laid upon us by some outside source, or as opposed to being tempted as a natural result of the necessity placed upon us in this life, whether that be the physical necessities of just living and conducting business or the spiritual necessities of evangelism and discipleship, when we enter into those temptations ourselves, not having our eyes open, not being privy to what we're doing in a blindness of sorts, we're already in a situation where we're walking according to the allurement of something other than faith, right? We're already in a situation where we have yielded ourselves to some measure of deceit of our own hearts in that we're stepping into a temptation with, with thoughtlessly or stepping into a temptation purposefully, putting ourselves into a context where we say, well, yeah, I know I struggle with this, but I can handle it this time, and I'm just going to go there. I'm just going to see how it goes. And of course, it doesn't often go well. So we all like money, and we all like things. And there's a temptation in each of our hearts to see money as a source, not simply of happiness, but there's a temptation in our hearts to see money as a source of contentment and peace, right? That if I had more money, I wouldn't have to worry about the things I have to worry about. This bubbles up in everyone's heart at some point, right? If only I had a little bit more money, I wouldn't have to worry about whether or not my car will start because I'd have a newer one. If I had more money, I wouldn't have to worry about whether or not I could pay that bill or whatever the case may be. If I had more money than I could operate, get that medical need fixed, or because money gets things done in the medical world, I could get the things done that need to get done, or whatever the case may be. But in many ways, while that's true, if you had more money, you could get that car, or you could pay that bill, or you could perhaps deal with that medical need. In many ways, though, this is the great snare, isn't it? The snare is when you become convinced that your worries, your cares, and your anxieties can be solved by the material things of this world. Does God need your money or my money to provide for me? He doesn't. Does God need the medical field to take care of your health? He doesn't. Does God need the material things of this world to work 
in the ways he sees fit. He, he doesn't. Should my cares and my fears and my emotions be really intrinsically tied to material things, things that can be here one moment and gone the next? Is, is there any wisdom in any context in placing my dependence, my emotions, my fears, my cares, my hopes, anything that, 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 that is real on things that are so fleeting? If God wants me to have something, can he not give it to me? If my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, then is not the feeling that money would solve my problems actually the problem? And this is the idea. They that will be rich, they that long to be rich, they that place their expectations upon riches, they who build up in their mind a framework around riches or the material things of this world that says, if only I had this or that, then this I'd feel this way. I'd, I'd be this way. I'd have these things. I would have contentment. I'd be happy. I'd fill in the blank, right? And it is the will within this man that is the problem, right? It's not the money. It's not the things. It's the will to be rich within the man. That's the heart. Now we get into deeper dangers. I've mentioned those temptations and those snares which might arise in the heart of one who seeks to follow the Lord and yet can be distracted by the cares of this world. But we've all seen the will to be rich take people deeper than that, haven't we? Into foolish and hurtful lusts into decisions that damage them and those they love, men and women who fail to raise their children in, or invest in one another and their marriage because they're consumed with the need to make money, people who get themselves into deep debt in order to fulfill a lust for possessions. Gambling is often described as a tax on the poor. This description acknowledges the fact that petty gambling is disproportionately engaged in by people who have absolutely no means by which to afford it, no discretionary income whatsoever. And the reason why it's so popular around that group of people is because the will to be rich has consumed them and convinced them that if only they can get the money they need, all of their problems would be solved. They spend and they borrow and they spend more, convinced that the big payoff is just around the corner. People who give their lives to the promises of fame and fortune, athletics, Hollywood, music industry, the get-rich-quick schemes from the pyramid schemes that we see out there into the dark world of drug dealing, how many of these people find contentment? And all of these things, when traced to their end, are at best a snare to keep people from the contentment that God would have for us to, to, to be in. And at worst, they drown men in ruin and utter destruction. How many lives are destroyed by the will to be rich? Not by being rich. By the will to be rich. This is it apparent among those who spend their lives seeking it and never find it. It's also apparent among those who do seem to find it. Who can honestly say that the most wealthy people in the world are also the most contented, the most happy, the most emotionally free, as it were? You know how people today are, how they present themselves on social media. If you've ever been in the great wasteland of social media and spent any time there, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've done this. A person gets on social media and they put on the smile, right? And they take the picture and they present themselves in a certain way and they establish their image. But in reality, if you, maybe you know them behind the scenes, their life is a mess, right? They smile for the picture and then they go back to their depression and their anxiety and their sleepless nights. And perhaps you've seen this before. Perhaps you've been there before. We even do this in the church, don't we? God forgive us. We put on our suits and our ties and we come and we smile and everything is well and then we go home to our miseries and our sorrows and our dysfunction. My daughters asked me about this just the other night. Um, we have a few people that we watch on YouTube and trace them for their various talents and gifts. 
uh, one of which there's a, a person who does hunting and cooking and such. And um, they said, they were asking about this person and they said, you know, this person, the only thing they ever do in their lives is, is hunt and cook. And, and I said, I told them, I said, now you need to remember girls. That's all you know of this person because that's all he's shown you. I said, now if, if people try to determine what I did in my life by the, move, by, by the videos that I have on YouTube, they would think that every second of every day I was preaching sermons because that's the only part of my life I have ever shown on YouTube. The part of me that's behind this pulpit gone from a black background to a light background. I have different suits, but it's always me behind this pulpit preaching messages. And if, if, if you assume that the only part of me that exists is the part that is on video, then you're going to think that all I ever do is, is preach. But that's not all I ever do, right? That's just the part that I have seen fit to show the world. We don't know what that man does in his free time. We don't know if he's the happy person that he presents himself on camera. We don't know if life is good for him when the camera turns off. We don't know because he has not shown us. We need to be careful with our perception of other people and the perception that they're seeking to give. We need to be careful uh, uh, falling into the temptation of the will to be rich because of the grass is always greener perception that the, that the glamour that that follows the wealth of this world. Now, there are those who are wealthy, healthy, and powerful, and yet they are contented and fulfilled, aren't there? But on the authority of God's word, I can tell you it's not because they're wealthy. That's not why they're contented and fulfilled. I guarantee it. That is simply an indication that they are one of those who is, has not fallen into, or at least is not living currently in the will to be rich and fallen into that snare. And whatever contentment they may have is just as open to any man regardless of one's economic status. And so we remember that we are not comparing rich and poor people here. We are comparing regardless of wealth, they that will be rich who succumb to the temptation to define their contentment on the basis of riches or other material things, and they that resist this temptation. And Paul gives us the reason for this warning in verse 10. For the love of money, he says, is the root of all evil, which some coveted after, while, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The reason why a will to be rich brings about temptation and a snare and leads men to fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition is because a root of all evil is this will to be rich. The word that uh, might be used is avarice. That word avarice means an excessive desire for wealth or for gain. And this is what is being spoken of here. This deep-seated drive and desire for gain, the love of money, a desire for money. And the Bible says it's a foundational source of evil in this world. Now, several things to mention here first. Notice the word evil here is not the word for sin. It's not the word for wickedness, but as is characteristic in the Bible, the word for evil is simply a word which means harmful, ill, sorrowful, bad, not necessarily wicked or sinful, just bad. And take note as well that the word here is plural, not singular. You um, don't see this from the text. You'd have to get to the Greek to see this one. Paul is speaking of the multitude of evils, not just of evil itself as an idea. It's not just evil in a nebulous way, but that it is a root of all evils, of the evils that we find in this world, the bad things in this world. And, and, and again, not just sin, but simply bad things. Second, in our King James Bibles, the word root here is modified by the definite article. The love of money is the root of all evil, giving impression that this is a singular root, a singular bad thing. I'm not convinced that this is Paul's intent here. We find that through, through the definite article in English, we give this idea, the love of money is the singular, definitive root of all evil. 
But in the Greek, that word actually lacks the definite article. So that it could be just as easily translated, the love of money is a root of all evil. And indeed, I believe that if we were to trace this through, just practically speaking, there are some bad things in this world which are not rooted in the love of money intrinsically. But as we operate in this world, there are what we might say a core set of foundational errors which lie at the heart of all motivations and evils. These have been historically called in the church the seven deadly sins. Now, this label is very Catholic in origin, but it does not follow that we should reject the substance simply because of the source. It's far more consistent with what we find and observe that greed, the love of money, is one of several of the deeper foundational sins that motivate men. Those seven deadly sins, as they have been characteristically labeled in, in uh, history, are lust, gluttony, greed, that would be our current one, right, avarice, slothfulness, wrath, envy, and pride. And indeed, I believe this list would rightly account, and I would be comfortable to say would account for all the evils of the world in a better way than simply broad brushing and saying the love of money is the root of all evil. There are some evils which pride might compel regardless of money, regardless of things per se. There are some evils which might be rooted in one of these other deep, intrinsic, foundational sins where perhaps the love of money, the love of things might not be primary in motivation. But what Paul presents here is that the love of money taps into the very base of our sin nature, covetousness and greed, that this covetousness has caused many to err in the faith as they've sought for salvation or contentment in money rather than Christ, as they have been able or willing to compromise their faith in order to have the things of this world. And the scriptures speak to this danger in any number of contexts. James tells us in James 2 and James 5 that the love of money can produce a spirit of oppression in men. So he speaks to rich men and he says that rich men oppress the poor. And the idea there is not that all rich men oppress the poor, but that there is a natural temptation among the rich and the powerful to put their boot on the neck of those who are weaker than them and to gain more at the expense of the weak. This is a, this is a, a temptation, a tendency, a propensity, a spirit of superiority in a man, if you will where they will elevate themselves as something above others because of their wealth or gain in this world. Solomon speaks to the emptiness of his own wealth in Ecclesiastes, expressing how his capacity to pursue any and every claim of contentment and satisfaction that this world had to offer ended only in vexation and vanity of spirit, bringing him to a place in Ecclesiastes 2.17 where he says, So I hated life because he knew that all of his gains were so very temporary that everything that he did in this life he would be passing down to the next king and that that next king might be a fool and might ruin everything. So he says, so he hated life because what good is it? Even if I have a bunch of money that I can pass down to my kids, watch them just blow it all like idiots. And then what good was it? So he says, I hated life. He hated even the idea of preserving his legacy because as we can even see today, if a person lives long enough or if, if a person's name lives on long enough, they can go from being the hero to the villain, right? People tearing down statues today of Thomas Jefferson, and the, the uh, Confederate generals and such. But the most devastating of these consequences is not emotional or physical, is it? The most devastating of these consequences is spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When the love of money consumes a man, it places his heart upon the things of this world, and those things invariably begin to crowd out the things of the world to come. Jesus would go on to say, no man can serve two masters. Write that down. Take note of that. You can't serve them both. 
You can have money and God, but you can't serve them both. It just does not work that way. Certainly the man who has money can operate fully as the, with the Lord as his master, but the man who loves money, the man who will be rich, his master is of this world and he can't have it both ways. So much so that the love of money has shackled many men in unbelief, driving their unwillingness to fully trust in Christ, to fully commit to the things of Christ, to give themselves to the call that Jesus Christ has put upon them because in doing so they would have to yield the things of this world, they would have to take up their cross and follow. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 13, right? He gives that parable of the sower and the seeds. And he talks about how those seeds landed on various types of ground. And some fell by the wayside. And he says, the fowl came and devoured them up. And some fell by the stony places. And he says uh, that there was not much earth there. And so they sprung up, but they had no depth of earth. And then when the sun rises, it would scorch them because they had no roots. And some fell among the thorns, he says. And they would they would spring up, but then the, the thorns would choke them, and then others fell upon good ground. And as he explained this parable to them, he did so by helping them understand the nature of each of these types of ground and then the nature of what happens to the seeds in this ground. He says the, stony, the, 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 the wayside, of course, those are the people which don't receive the word of God at all. And then he says, there are those who receive the word of God into a stony place. And they are those that hear the word and with joy receive the word, but they have no root. And so when tribulation or persecution comes, uh, because their roots are, are, are very shallow, the word of God is stripped from them. It never actually bears fruit. And then he says, there are those, and, and, and that, that doesn't concern us too much today. That would have uh, been more along the temptation line of things. And then he says that there are those who were received among the thorns. And as he describes this idea of them being received among the thorns, he says that they are those who hear the word of God, they receive it, but then as the plant begins to spring up of a, of a faith in the word, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches... That's who we're talking about. We are talking about that Matthew 13, 22 man who the danger in the heart of a man who because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches has his faith either unto salvation or unto a further relationship with God choked out because when it comes down to this way or that way, riches or God, he chooses the world. He chooses the riches. He chooses the cares of this world. And again, not every decision is money or God. There are plenty of people who can follow God and make money, right? We also see this exemplified in the rich young ruler, don't we? Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 25. And a certain ruler asked him, Jesus, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not, adultery, uh, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he had heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus interacts <coughs> excuse me, with this ruler who had measured himself by his own alignment with the law and found himself blameless. Now, naturally, he is not blameless as it relates to these things. Christ uh, does not seek to argue with this man's assessment of himself. Instead, he turns to another element of this man's life which will make it clear to him what's going on here. And that thing was money. He was a moral man, but he was a rich man and he loved his money. And money stood between him and a willingness to truly devote himself to whatever it was, whatever path Christ might ask him to walk on, whatever road he would take. To this end, Jesus responds, sell all that you have and follow me. And the man was very, very sorrowful. And this brings a contemplation in Jesus' heart. 
and he exclaims, lamenting how hard it is for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And Paul would add to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the noble man, the mighty man, and the wise man. The rich, the noble, the mighty, and the wise. Why is it so hard for the rich, the noble, the mighty, and the wise to enter into the kingdom of God? Why is it that they have a much more hard, difficult time entering into the kingdom of heaven than otherwise? Well, because they must enter in the same way any man enters in. They must set aside anything and everything that they might be trusting in, and they must follow Christ alone. And the man who has more to gain in this world has more to lose in this world, doesn't he? And yet, this was not Jesus saying it could not be done. This was not saying that a wealthy man can't be saved, or, or Paul saying a noble man or a mighty man or a wise man cannot be saved. Jesus makes this clear as they continue. Verses 26 and 27 of Luke 18, And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And Jesus answered, He said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. It would seem impossible then that the rich, the noble, the wise, and the mighty would be saved. But that which is impossible with man is possible with God. So it is that we find this warning of Paul in 1 Timothy 6. And as we step back into this context, let us remember carefully the purpose. Paul is instructing Timothy. And we see the primary focus being instruction toward ministers. We're going to see the minister part come up primarily next week, where we'll get into verses 11 and following. And then the week after that, we'll see deeper instruction as it relates to the, those that are rich in this world. Um, and Timothy would certainly not have been one of those at this time. So while the principles are important and valid among all men, don't lose sight of the fact that Paul is heading toward this idea of teaching Timothy as a minister how he ought to relate to money and then how he ought to teach those that have money to relate to money. And for this week, we're just going to stop here. I'm going to broach verse 11 for context and then we'll leave it there and then we'll jump into our application. Verse 11 says this, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. This is Paul directing his attention specifically toward Timothy as a minister. We're going to see that next week. Does, and then we'll broaden that application to others and then we'll, we'll continue from there. Timothy is called to flee from the spirit, from the love of money, from the will to be rich, to avoid it at all costs, for it, as it would seek to destroy a man in any normal circumstance for the minister, the love of money is deeply, deeply dangerous. Four points of application as we conclude today. Point number one. Take note, know well that the love of money pervades this world. The world is built upon money. Always has been. Always will be until Christ makes all things new. If things get done in this world, it takes capital. Governments need money. Businesses need money. Families need money. Money is how things get done in this world. By far and significantly more than this, it must be understood that the love of money pervades this world. Until the day that Jesus returns, this will be the case. So that I can go out, I can earn a paycheck, I can provide for my family, I can enjoy the things of this life, but I need to understand that as, <coughs> excuse me, as I see this world operate, it is operating on love for money and that this love for money, the spirit of this world is always going to be there, is always going to be a temptation whenever I'm interacting with this world. And it needs to open our eyes to the fact that within the context of world systems, the idea that a certain segment of the population is taking the moral high ground and thus a certain population of this world that's living in the depths of their own sinful choices is not using money as, an, as a matter of their considerations is kind of an illusion. When we know this and see this, we are equipped to fight the temptation to not be deceived by the institutions of this world as it relates to money. May I give you an example? 
and it's low-hanging fruit, so uh, it is what it is, but consider the green movement and climate change today. We might consider it to be, as far as movements go on their face, one of the most ideologically pure movements, right? The idea that, nope, we would be willing to dismantle the entire economy to save this thing, although no one actually believes it uh, um, naturally. We see that by their actions. And yet, far from being intrinsically about climate change and the green movement at its face, what do we see happening behind the scenes? An industry designed to fundamentally redistribute money and power away from people and give it to governments. A trillion dollar industry just beyond economic value that seeks for a global redistribution away from the people and into the hands of global power brokers. Money's there. It's there. It's not its front face, but it's, it's there. Hence all of the people that fly around the world in their private jets talking about climate change, putting out more emissions in one day of flight than I'll put out an entire year with my cars and my house and everything else. The hypocrisy reveals the priorities. And when you dig down, you find that the principles end where the money begins. And this is not surprising, and it should not be surprising. I'm not even, this is not even me trying to get political. This is me telling you that the love of money pervades this world. The entertainment industry, not really driven by talent and passion. It's driven by money. The religious industrial complex, an industry designed to prey upon people's desire and need to worship and to monetize them, right? driven by money. Politics, lobbyists, all, the, the whole thing. When you recognize that the love of money pervades this world, it will fundamentally change your perspective on these things. And of course, I'd love to continue on that path and talk through any number of these things as far as principles that are coming to the forefront. We have a very unique time in 2020 um, as it relates to the election coming up, right? And we don't know how it's all going to play out in the Democratic uh, conventions and the caucus and, and, and making the decision as to who the nominee will be. But there are some deeply seated ideological differences that are going to bubble up in a way that we have not seen since the Cold War in 2020. And a lot of it comes down to misrepresentations, naturally, ideologies, but follow the money. And you'll find that it's there all over. Either way, really. And of course, we've, many of us have talked about that personally, and those conversations are always enjoyable and edifying, and I hope to have many of them over the course of 2020 with you. But back to the point. You and I need to know uh, that this world, as we step into this world, as we interact in this world, as we see the power in this world and how power shifts and the decisions that are being made, as we minister in this world, because if we come out of this world altogether, we can't reach this world, we, we need to understand the love of money. We need to see how the love of money interacts with our own personal hearts. We need to recognize how the interplay uh, um, is handled. We need to bring ourselves to a place where we are able to handle it because there's no way of escaping it in this world. And when we know this, we can then step into the world prepared to meet it where it is and show it a better way. And then we can guard ourselves against the temptation to get caught up in this world, leading us to that second point. Things do not satisfy. I know you know this because you've experienced it. I even gave that illustration last week, which I said I think is going to come up again next week. And here it is. You've seen it with children. You've felt it in your own heart. You've perceived it in your own heart. When you say, if only I can have that thing, I will be satisfied. And you get it, and it quenches your thirst for a moment, and then you're thirsty again. 
You know things don't satisfy. I know things don't. I could say this every week and it could still be a shock to my system every week. Because we are, we're constantly tempted to fall into this mindset of the things that we have and the things that we don't and the things that we want and the things that we can have and the things that we can't have. Carry that with you every day. Carry that recognition of, of your children or of your childhood with you every day when you thought that that thing would satisfy you and then it didn't. It did, but it didn't, right? You enjoyed it and maybe you enjoyed it for a good number of years. But you, that itch always comes back. Remind yourself of that. And when you feel that longing for the things that you desire, and by the way, may I say this as well? If there is a void and you've gone to some things like Solomon did and you're trying to fill that void and you're, you're missing something, it's not something material. There's a void spiritually. You are missing something if you feel a void. But the solution is going to be found in the pages of the Word of God. In a relationship with God, it's not going to be found in your bank account or in your wallet or in your paycheck. I, I, I don't pretend, and we dare not pretend that there's not times in our lives where we feel an emptiness, a void, and that we might go shopping or start eating or you know, devote ourselves to work or, or, or whatever it might be to try to fill a void. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that the things of this earth will not fill that void. They will not satisfy. They cannot satisfy intrinsically by their nature. They cannot satisfy. And remind yourself of that when you feel those longings for things that you don't have and you feel like if you get it, you will just be satisfied. Remember that your heart is lying to, to you. That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That those advertisers are lying to you. That society is lying to you. And most importantly, your own heart is lying to you. And you need to guard yourself against that because... The love of money is a path that drowns men in perdition, in despair. It is at best a temptation and a snare. And many err from the faith. God forbid that it would be us. Point three. The love of money is an active threat both in the church and to the church. In the church, by this I mean as individuals within the body contend with the spirit of greed, it can create factions within the church itself. The haves and the have-nots, a spirit of contempt uh, of the poor for the rich or a spirit of judgment of the rich for the poor. We see this a little bit in James, where James rebukes the church because they give the rich the elevated seats and they make the poor sit at their feet as if somehow their economic standing gives them any sort of spiritual standing with God. That was a thing that was particularly difficult among the Jews because for generations they had regarded a direct link between one's wealth and one's godliness. But then we also see this contempt, right? And we see this in society heavily today. The contempt for the 1%, right? The Occupy Wall Street movement of the Obama years. This idea that if you are rich, you must be therefore evil. You are evil simply by being rich. That makes you one of the evil ones, this contempt. That can happen in the church too, can't it? Where those that are the have-nots, in a sense, develop a contempt for those that have. And anyone in the church can be infected with this spirit at any time. It may be that the rich in the church are not afflicted with that will to be rich and that the poor are actually the ones that are infected with this will to be rich in the church. Or it could be the other way around, or it could be both. And the love of money is an active threat in the church. But there's also an active threat to the church. And what I mean by this distinction in the church would be from the body to the church. It can be the very mindset of our church. The idea that we need money in order to increase outreach, to enact programs. We need money in order to beautify 
the externals so that more people will come and then as more people will come we'll make more money and then as more as we make more money then we can do more to get more people to come and again I'm not saying intrinsically that having a nice building or presenting yourself well or being or having the money with which to enact programs and outreach is in any way a bad thing but when when the will to money becomes a priority in the church things in the church change when once the church feels it needs to keep people in the seats because it's beholden to money, the church will be tempted to change what it preaches to not offend the people in the seats. What it believes to be able to bring more people in or even to the degree to which it's willing to reveal itself to others. One of the small ways that, that, that churches might do this, if you've ever been church shopping, and I apologize for the terribly carnal term, but if you've ever been looking for a church before and you get on the website and they tell you as little as possible about themselves and it seems as though they're trying to keep you from knowing who they are, there's a reason for that. I'm not saying that it's a malicious reason, but, but every pastor knows that the more you tell a person, the more things there are for them to get offended over. And they're competing, they're combating the nature of a man to get offended over silly things, petty things, uh, by not telling them things. But there's a danger in that too, isn't there? In being reclusive and not bringing things up because at what point am I going to say, well, I'm not putting it on the website because I want people to visit. At what point are you going to say, well, now I'm not going to say it from the pulpit because I want people to stay. How quickly can it go from, I'm not going to put it on the website because I want people to visit to I'm not going to say it from the pulpit because I want people to stay. That, that leap, it seems like a chasm, but it's really not in the heart of a minister. <laughs> it, can, it can happen pretty quickly. And that can be a danger, can't it? And this puts the minister in a very unique and a difficult place that needs to be combated on the mindset level. And then finally, I'm going to skip a few slides here for the sake of time. Finally, final point. God doesn't need money. This is just to establish perspective. It strays a little bit from the direct and fullest consequences of the love of money. But let's just rem remember this. I had mentioned earlier in this message some of the ways that the love of money can give way to foolish and hurtful lusts. Crippling debt, gambling, stealing. It can lead to dishonesty, anger, discord, fr frustration, violence, and all the, the sorts. And while there are elements of the deeper consequences of the love of money that generally elude those that love the Lord, Many of you are not going to be so driven to need money that you're going to end up dealing drugs on the corner or any of those sorts of things. We're, we're probably not going to have a whole lot of that in this church, this type of church. That, that, that's not necessarily going to be the direction that most people in this church would go. But we're not immune from those same feelings, are we? Of fear and anxiety and worry that come from the need for money. We're not immune from the temptation to seek the world's pragmatic solutions to solve these problems. And in this last point, I'd like to emphasize the antidote to the love of money. It's a concept of faith that God does not need money to make an impact, to sustain your family, to sustain this church, to change this world. Now, will God often use money? Yeah. Will God often use your labors and your faithfulness? Yes, that's how God has designed it. Let a man work, Ephesians 4 tells him, that he may have to give to them that have need. We know that God uses money, God uses economics, that God uses these things, but God is not limited to that. God did not use the institutions of power in the Roman Empire to turn the world upside down for Christ, did he? He used willing and obedient men and women with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and the gospel spread like wildfire. God did not need tens of thousands of dollars of infrastructure and capital to get his message around the world. He needed the hearts of men through his spirit. And to such sentiments, one might consider that such things work much better in fortune cookies than they do operating in the world around us. But in reference to this world, it's true. The idea that ideologically you don't need money in reference to this world, that's just a fortune cookie statement. 
But in reference to God's people, this has never been the case. In Israel, God promised that if they would keep his covenant, 10 would chase 100 and 100 would chase 10,000. We see it in Gideon's day where God whittled the army of Gideon down to 300 men because he didn't want too many in the army lest God not get the glory. We see it in David's day when David confronts Goliath, don't we? We see it in Hezekiah in the day when the Assyrian army had surrounded the city and Hezekiah falls on his face and he takes the letter that had been given to him by Sennacherib and he says, God, this is what they're saying about your people. And the next day they wake up and 100,000 men are dead in the fields. We see it in the prophets when Isaiah declared the nation to be but a drop in the bucket before the sovereign power of God. If God is working and God's people are aligned, look, God's will will be done. It will. And while he might use money to bring about that will, he might use any number of amazing circumstances and use this world's, uh, uh, the, the, the framework of this world to bring it about, he doesn't need us to compromise or to become pragmatic to tap into it. If God be for us, who can be against us, Romans 8 says. God has every right to use money to bring us provision and wellness. God has every right to use money to establish his ministries in and through the world, and he has. But God is not limited to it. Now, naturally, let me always give the other side of this. This does not mean that I can sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and say, well, God doesn't need money to provide for me, so I'm just not going to earn any money, right? That's not how this works. But when we're doing our part, it's foolish for those who know God to run to the world for solutions instead of the God who made the world. And so today we're warned about the danger of this will to be rich, the effect on men, the effect on ministry, and particularly the need in the heart of the minister, as we'll see next week, to flee from these temptations. And may God help us as a church, may God help us as individuals to keep our mind properly oriented with him, properly oriented on the nature of our relationship to the things of this world, lest we fall into the love of money, lest we fall into these foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men, lest we fall into this love of money that is indeed at the root system of the evils of this world. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.